1: Rate right with service on the Visible Plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.
2: I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. then do it, sir. Say I'm, it.
1: Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me white's a name. White supremacist. and white right like right me to condemn? White supremacists and white right supremacists. Boys. boys, stand back and stand by.
3: Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a special episode. We're releasing a day early. There won't be a Thursday episode this week, though we will have something special for you a bit later in the week. But this is a debate episode. Um, I logged on with Matt, uh, Matt Iglesias, my co-host on The Weeds, where this will also be, to talk about what we just saw. I'm talking to you late on Tuesday night. And I just want to prepare you, like, this is not not an easy listen exactly. Uh, I think it's a true listen, but I am disturbed and I think you should be disturbed. And uh, I hope in this show, I'm able to properly convey why. Um, I think you know on the show that I try pretty hard to see the other side's views. I try pretty hard to make the best case for ideas that are not mine. I try to invite people on and I'm going to continue doing that, particularly in October, because I want the actual debate this country is having to be represented here on the show. I want this to be a place where like, you can hear um, a good argument for views that are not the ones I hold, but I also don't want this to be a place where the reality of what this country is debating, facing, and going through is obscured. And so this is a debate episode, and it's also an episode about... <laughs> like the unbelievable dangers in American democracy right now. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Matt Iglesias.
4: We started a show called The Weeds some years ago uh, with the premise that we were going to talk about uh, public policy, like the real weeds uh, of the issues, and I and I do always try to find like a weedsy angle in things. Uh, if if I think about a show, but like, did you see anything in the course of this debate that could be characterized as like a a policy debate, an argument, something to delve into the weeds of? Sorry, I'm taking a moment to answer because I'm trying to calibrate myself.
3: So. I think people are going to hear me sounding very measured in this, and and I, I want to, like as an emotional signposting thing, that is because I found tonight really unnerving. Um, two things I want to say right off the bat about the debate. So one, Donald Trump's performance was completely out of control. I don't mean it was good strategy or bad strategy. I'm not here to play some bullshit theater critic role. Like... Donald Trump performed like a lunatic. And I recognize that there was some strategy there. He was trying to knock Biden off of his game or maybe knock Biden into a senior moment they could clip and, and, and send out over YouTube or something. But throughout the whole debate, it was just a festival of endless interruptions, endless lying, just not being able to sit still and talk about anything for two seconds. It was a completely emotionally out-of-control performance. And it was real. It was authentic. Uh, you could look at Donald Trump and see this just coming from a, a, a real place in him. But the, the more substantive point I want to make about it is it was suffused both in terms of the actual things Donald Trump said and then the thing he was doing on a meta level with contempt for... American democracy. So at the end, there was a section on voting, which I, I'm not really on board with some of the the hate on Chris Wallace. I think that was just a tough job, um, no matter who was going to do it with the president acting that way. But you should not just serve up on a silver platter, an opportunity for Donald Trump to delegitimize election results in advance because he will take it. We've seen that many times in the past with him, and we we know it to be true. That's courting a crisis, not giving voters information. But from the end, like going backwards like Donald Trump, saying very clearly he will not necessarily accept the results of the election, saying very clearly, although not by making a clear point that he does not think mail-in voting is legitimate. And if he loses because of mail-in ballots, which would be a very normal way to lose an election, particularly during a nationwide viral pandemic, uh, he will not accept that loss. Then just going backwards through the entire thing, just constantly lying about everything during a debate, not standing up there and saying, here are my plans, like this is my healthcare plan, this is Joe Biden's healthcare plan, and here's why mine is better. Just lying about everything, saying I have a comprehensive healthcare plan when I don't. That's not just, it's not just like a tactic. That's actually taking an ax to the fundamental ground, the fundamental like tree uh, upon which elections are hung. You have to be able to like have a debate about what the two candidates are going to do. And Donald Trump over and over and over again just tried to confuse people about what people would do. I mean, there was a moment when Joe Biden was way too tough on crime and he was going to defund the police. You know, Joe Biden, he constantly accused Joe Biden of supporting things he doesn't support. I I know I've covered politics for two decades now. I know politicians lie and they exaggerate. But this is a difference in kind. And and Donald Trump, like the constant interruptions, the total unwillingness to let Biden get an answer out, just the 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 I don't think it was even good strategy. So it's not like what I'm doing here is that I think, you know, Donald Trump won this debate, but he did it unfairly. Donald Trump lost this debate. He looked like a not just a Crazy person, but I think very importantly, like a bad person, like not somebody he would want to entrust the country to. And he's already quite down in the polls. It's not, I think sometimes people have a like a misleading view of Trump's political magic, but most people did not vote for him in 2016. And even fewer people want to vote for him this time. Uh, if you believe the polls, and I think that the, if the pollsters have done a lot of work to, to account for errors from 2016. So Trump is down. He needs to win people who currently don't like him. And this was not a performance done. D- designed to do that but what it was just a performance to do was like light a match um and like throw it on the gasoline of uh, american politics and american elections because donald trump doesn't think he can win like he's not here to make a better argument and get elected based on that argument he's here to try to seize power or retain power by any means necessary And I think one of the really difficult things to do right now for all of us involved in American politics is to say clearly what we saw on that stage tonight and to not let this fall into the normal categories and nomenclature of elections and presidential debates and stratagems and and so on. Like This was not normal. It was not okay. It was a terrifying like a genuinely unsettling terrifying night in american politics where if you imagine working backwards from a terrible crisis that mounts after the election and you showed you know future students a video of this night they'd be like yeah i I definitely see how that came about i I, i'm a little i'll stop talking now but I am a little beside myself like this is a this is a sad place for the country to have fallen to. But but let me get let me get your take on, on it in turn. And I want to ask something in particular uh, about it with you, which is when you watch Donald Trump up there, when you watch what he is doing and then how Joe Biden is responding, like how would you describe what that interaction is? Like, how would you describe the ground upon which the two sides are trying to frame
4: this election? So I think that a lot of people who watch this debate will just be puzzled as to what was going on uh, because it was it was weird. Um, but if you had been following the kind of meta conversation around the debate over the previous couple of days, I I think you can get some understanding of it, right, which is that the Trump people know that they were losing. Um, They know that debates don't normally lead to large swings, but they sometimes do. Right. Like debates are on the short list of events that at least could move public opinion. Um, And so they really wanted to make something happen at this debate. And they were pretty clear in their messaging in the week prior to the debate that they did not think that they were going to win a policy argument with. Biden. And you can see they didn't try to. They believed I mean, they've been saying on and off that Joe Biden is suffering from dementia and that he would be relying on some kind of secret hidden earpiece or performance enhancing drugs. And I think Trump's, you know, display there where he both completely refused to follow the rules and also repeatedly tried to uh, attack uh, Biden's son, Hunter, you know, including in a very emotional moment when Biden was talking about his late son, Beau, Trump, like, turned it around with this, this attack on, on his other son. And the goal of that was to produce this Joe Biden emotional or mental meltdown, right, that was, like, going to be their, their knockout blow. And what happens, you know, when you're down, right, is you you make risky bets. And I think they, they placed a risky bet there, right, that this was going to be like, uh, like something from a television show. You know what I mean? Where like Trump was going to come up there and he was going to throw punches so fast and furious and Biden would just implode or something. Um, And it didn't happen because their central charge about Biden and his mental acuity is not true. And it's clearly not true. And it's one of these things where you wonder, right, like, who's BSing whom? Like, they've been saying all this stuff about how Biden won't leave his basement. Uh, They've been saying it for months, even though Biden does keep leaving his basement. And it makes you wonder, you know, did somebody believe it? Right. And You know, so on its own terms, I think it's just a tactical gambit that was uh, a little mean-spirited and low-minded, but it didn't work, right? But it's when you put that because the foundation of it was Trump refusing to follow the rules, which is something that we have seen, not just in a debate context, but in the way Trump conducts himself as president. And where it becomes really disturbing is when you add in the moment when Wallace hands him this this softball, like, will you condemn white supremacist groups? And Trump won't do it. Right. He says, like, the Proud Boys should stand by and watch or something. Um, and then stand later, back and stand by, stand back and stand by. And then he goes into this stuff at the end about how voting by mail is fraud and we can't trust the results. And, you know, terrible things are happening in Philadelphia. And you never know, you know, with Trump, any given thing he says, there's 85 percent chance it's just nonsense. But it leaves you with the 15 percent chance that a president who does not believe he should be concerned strained by the rules, is going to encourage white supremacist militias to engage in acts of violence to disrupt the voting. And like, I don't I don't want to say that's what's going to happen because I'm saying 15 percent, but it's it's way more than zero percent. Like all three of those things happened over the course of the debate. Right. Like Trump made it clear he doesn't think he should have to follow the rules. Trump made it clear that he wants to retain the support of violent white supremacist militia groups. And Trump made it clear that he does not accept the legitimacy of the voting system. And it was bad television, but also really, you know, you don't know. You you don't know what's going to happen over the next two months. Two years of American history, but like it could be, it could be really bad.
3: I want to note this because I there, there is this way, and I know this is not what you were saying, but I saw this sentiment out there tonight that this is bad television, debates are useless, like and, and there's some I'm somewhat sympathetic to it, but I do want to note that this was revealing television. I mean, this debate was not useful and enlightening in the way they sometimes are, but it wasn't useless either. I mean, it's actually valuable to see the president of the United States acting like that. People have heard me probably make this uh, argument before, but something I think about a lot with Trump is the way we have slid down like Maslow's hierarchy of political needs. And I, I think about covering in 2012 the Romney Obama debates. Right, that's the last time we had an incumbent um, president debating a, a challenger. And you know, my politics on up, you know, more with Barack Obama's than than Mitt Romney's. But I remember. I mean, we were you know writing about the tax plans and 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 Mitt Romney's a capable guy who like was making a series of arguments about how to run the country and what would bring the economy back faster and you know what should you think about economic uncertainty and the deficit and like we could like sit around and and, and debate what the two visions of the two political parties are which is how political systems are supposed to work we are in this it's like we've slid so far down that the questions we end up asking are things like is the president a white supremacist? Does the president mean or even know anything? He says a couple at a couple of moments, Trump kept yelling at Biden to ask why Biden hasn't, in his 47 years in public life, repeal things Trump did during the three years of his presidency, which was like a weird, like a very weird structure of an argument. Like, why didn't you like in 1986 get rid of my tax cuts that I passed in 2017? But it reflects that Trump isn't making arguments. He's simply saying shit um, and like, you know, hoping people can't can't quite keep up. But that's an important, I think, thing to watch happening because like Trump is just saying stuff, right? So like can you trust anything the president says? Does he even really know what is coming out of his mouth or what he means by it in the moment? Like what information sources is he using that are either convincing him of things like Biden has dementia or you know that all these ballots are being thrown out? Um at, at every level here, we have been walled off from hopefully, and I don't just mean ideally, I just mean um in some semi reasonable uh, situation, the questions we'd be asking about these candidates in, by the way, a time of not just national crisis, but global crisis, right? Are they good at running the government? Do they have good plans for what to do about the coronavirus? Like, how do they see the way America should deal with the rising power of China? I mean, there are a million things that are that, you know, what should we do about climate change that are really here? And every couple of minutes, um, Trump would shut up for a minute and Biden would like open a window to a parallel universe where they were having a normal debate and talk. about about his climate plan for 62 seconds, and then Trump would get back in the game. But we're really low down here. I mean, the things we're having to ask, will the president of the United States accept an election in which he loses? Will he potentially, is he sending messages that either are meant to be or are simply interpretable by right-wing uh, white supremacist militias to try to disrupt the ele- like, those. The fact that we are reasonably, and I do want to stress, I think we are reasonably asking these questions, interpreting his performance in that way. The fact that Trump just lies through his teeth, says he doesn't, he has a comprehensive healthcare plan when he doesn't, says Roe v. Wade isn't on the ballot when, of course, like that is like literally what is happening here is Trump is appointing somebody to the court who opposed, as far as we know, opposes the Roe decision. And if, they strike that decision down as a six three conservative majority, or a five four if they, you know, if they lose Roberts or something, and then that goes to the states, of course, or the the federal government. That, of course, is on the, like it's of course on the ballot. Like that's part of what this election is actually about. That level of lying, that level of defiance of the truth, what um, Masha Gessen likes to call the bully lie, the the lie that is not about being fact checked. The lie is about showing that you have the power to say anything you want to say. It is a dangerous space for American politics, but that that puts it too too lightly in a way. It is a um, mind-bending space for American politics because what it basically does is use the norms and language and pageantry of our elections and our political system against itself. It becomes hard sometimes to see what is going on. There are a lot of ways in which I didn't think Biden's performance was amazing. He like, you know, and some things I wish he wouldn't say. And, you, you know, like I, I think Trump more lost his debate than Biden won it. But we don't even get to sort of have some of the some of those conversations because we are stuck in this like the country is run by a bigoted lunatic situation who's like lying constantly and threatening to to violence if, if he loses the election. And I don't really think our political structures are up to the challenge of that. I will say is one more point on this. One thing that was really telling but would not be obvious to to everybody tuning in. This was Chris Wallace moderating. I mean, Chris Wallace is the serious journalist on Fox News, and I I respect him as a journalist. I think he's done good interviews and, and, and good work and is just a more conservative guy than I am. But he's On Fox News, right, he is a he's fundamentally like a a sympathetic player um, within the context of American politics to Donald Trump and the Republican Party. He's from a network that has really tried to bend the knee to Donald Trump and and Trump's Republican Party. And like by the like like, Chris Wallace does not want to get into a fight with Donald Trump at all. By the end of the night, he was just like he was furious. You could just watch him. And that just, in a way, that was also a helpful, telling moment, right? It's not just that, like, Donald Trump is there annoying liberals. Like, Donald Trump is there enraging Chris Wallace of Fox News so that Chris Wallace ends up yelling at him. Um, and I saw people wishing, like, Chris Wallace had somehow cut his mic, which he could didn't have the power to do, or, or you know, not sometimes say gentleman when he meant Donald Trump. But at some point, he was very clear. Like, he said to Trump, you're the one doing all the interrupting and making this so we can't have a debate. And it was... Like if you just take Chris Wallace as somehow like a control group that you could watch the reaction against, it was helpful to see like how how like they got the right wing guy to moderate the first debate and they couldn't even hold
4: him like by the end of it, he just couldn't stand Donald Trump either. But here so here's here's my question for you is that, you know, I I watch some of these things that play out. Right. And so the Chris Wallace thing is a great example because Chris Wallace is, you know, more conservative than most journalists. Um, and and so why he he gets along with the other people on Fox. And you know, you saw he had very conservative framing, right? Like to have a like race and the violence in our cities topic is like how conservatives think about these things. But he's a real professional journalist. And so clearly what happened was was that like he he takes pride in his work right? He wanted to be the moderator of what is remembered as one of the great presidential debates of all time. And it said, I don't really think it's his fault. But the fact is, like, he was the moderator of a shit show. And so he doesn't like that. Like, I've moderated panels, I'm sure you have too. And sometimes they go bad. And like, it doesn't make you happy as as a moderator. So he's, he's upset at Trump. But the whole essence of Trump's presidency is that the people who matter in the conservative movement don't have that reaction to Trump, right? So like when Trump accuses Biden of being too tough on crime, or when Trump claims that Roe v. Wade isn't on the ballot, like he doesn't get blowback from his base, right? And if Biden or anyone, if any Democrat just like got up and, pretended to actually have the opposite position on the major issues of the day that they have, like progressives would get upset, right? Like if if Joe Biden denied that he supports Roe v. Wade to try to gain some tactical advantage or just out of confusion, like Planned Parenthood and NARAL would be losing their shit. And the conservative coalition seems to me to have, to be different in the level that like they look at all this maniacal behavior from trump and they don't necessarily love it but they feel confident right that like he's their guy that they want him to win that they spend money on it that they you know shield him from congressional investigations all all this kind of stuff And, and i wonder you know as the sort of polarization guy like what do you make of that? like What gives the right in America so much confidence that like more of this is really what they want? So I wouldn't frame it as confidence.
3: So I had uh, Lee Drutman on the show on the Ezra Klein show the other day, and he's the author of a great book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, uh, I think it is. But it's about the ways in which America's two-party political system and our like fundamental voting structures, which create it, Create a situation in which polarization gets much, much, much worse. And, and one of the, the reasons it is, and, and I know Matt, you've done a lot of writing on proportional representation, but one of the reasons is that with only two parties, everything becomes zero sum and people, particularly when the parties become ideologically sorted the way they have and, and demographically sorted the way they have, there's nowhere for them to go. So I, I do a lot of reporting with Republicans and I think a lot of them do not want Donald Trump running the party. I think a lot of them wish any number of other people were doing it, from Mike Pence to Marco Rubio to Ted Cruz to Josh. I mean, you got all all kinds of folks there. There are some who love him. I mean, there's no doubt about that either. But but there are a lot who don't, and who might have looked at this or any of a number of things that have happened over the past couple of years in another political system, and said, "Huh, I don't like this guy at all. I don't want to be part of this. I don't want this to be my legacy." So. I'm jumping over to the other right wing party which is run by the other right wing person and if we win maybe we'll end up in coalition with the republicans but it doesn't mean that if we uh like if I leave Joe Biden gets to you know it won't literally be cuz they'll, they'll jam Amy Coney Barrett through quicker than that, but but Joe Biden gets to replace Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. So the thing that holds people in place isn't positive partisanship towards Donald Trump. I mean, that's that's the let's call it the twenty or thirty percent um of Americans he absolutely cannot lose because they 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 actually really like him. But it's that other group who would prefer somebody else to to support, and they don't have that person because the political incentives of a two-party system don't give it to them. Now, there's other things going on here too. Um, If primaries were still run by party elites, Donald Trump would never have gotten the leadership of the Republican Party in the first place. I mean, he had a sort of unusual path through the primaries that would not have been even possible a couple of decades ago. Uh, And you know, I got other views on this. You know, Trump delivers for for them, like on Barrett, where it matters uh, in, in some key cases, gave them tax cuts. But him himself, look, a lot of them don't like, including, by the way, a lot of people who work for him in the White House. But Joe Biden had an interesting moment at the debate where Trump was badgering him about something. And Biden says, I am the Democratic Party now. I am the leader of the Democratic Party. And on some level, that's obviously an oversimplification of it. Parties are complex structures, but and like there are things Biden could do that he would not be able to get away with. But on another level, it's actually kind of true. Um, and you see it in the number of Democrats who do not like Joe Biden, really, who wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Julian Castro or somebody else and have gotten on board with with Biden because they don't really have another choice. Donald Trump, because he won the primaries, he is the Republican Party. And so if you are a Republican. You end up with him, like whether or not you like it. He makes some rhetorical moves. But one of the things that I do think separates him from others, and I think maybe this goes to to this other point you're making, Matt, is that if Joe Biden came out and said he doesn't support Roe v. Wade, people would listen to him and be like, oh, no, Joe Biden doesn't support Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, is a a view he held earlier in his career. Um, If Donald Trump comes out and says, I have a comprehensive health care plan to give every American health insurance guaranteed by the government, like no Republican thinks he does or will try to do anything like that. And so that that ability to not really listen to what he says is, a, I think, also a key a key dynamic of it.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's part of what makes these things so shapeless. Like, I thought Biden had a strong moment you know, when Trump was was yelling about Hunter at some point, and he did one of his, like, look-direct-to-the-camera things, and he says, like, Trump doesn't want to talk about you, you know? Um, and then, like, if Biden was getting, like, an A instead of a B-plus debate, he would have then really quickly rattled off, like, 11 things that Joe Biden wants to do for you. Uh, but but he didn't, right? So he was never able to quite turn the debate to the fact that, like, he has ideas and Trump's things are fake, right? So I think that Trump being so weird on policy was helpful to him in 2016. Um, A lot of people like, uh, you know, college educated Trump hating people can't believe this. But Trump was perceived as the most moderate major presidential uh, nominee in a generation by the elector, because he was seen as this kind of heterodox guy who broke with Republican orthodoxy and a lot of important things. And he still has that manner, right, as he kind of rambles and claims to have a plan for pre-existing conditions and a million other things. But now he's kind of stuck with his record which people don't like already and you know like words can only go so far in terms of actually changing anyone's impressions of anything so but it's just still i mean you were talking about mitt romney right and i mean i think <laughs> i think romney made a tactical error in being so specific and like come on the weeds and debate your tax plan uh because the basic fact of the matter is is that sort of free market economics ideas are not very popular. And so it's better to to skate past them. But from a journalistic standpoint, it it was just such a pleasure to cover the 2012 campaign, where you could dissect, like, does this proposal make sense? Like, is this thing Romney or Obama said about the other one true? Where does it go? Um, Biden, you know, if, if you had to if you had to judge him in isolation, it was like I think he misdescribed how the public option in his health plan works. It was totally unclear to me what he was saying about the Green New Deal. Like, it's actually very unimpressive, but compared to Trump, who just lied and, and menaced people, it's like, you know, it's, it's it's Biden in a landslide to me. But it it makes me wonder, like, what what do we contribute as journalists to one's understanding of this. Like, like, what are we, what are we doing here? Oh,
0: let's take a break because I do want to come
4: back and talk about that.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Support for the gray area comes from borough. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. borough.com slash box
3: so i i am really myself struggling with this question like what i want to sit here and do is bang out on my keyboard like the most angry despairing piece about donald trump and it's very likely that i will do that, and also I don't really think it helps. I mean, nobody is wondering what I think about Donald Trump at this point, and I'm not sure that adding one more take on this to the unbelievable like pile of takes on this is is, is going to be valuable. So maybe you, you want to pivot away from it, and at the same time, um, there is this like very fundamental question when you're this deep in a in, in in a campaign about. I mean, the presidential campaign is important. Like the thing Donald Trump always traps you in with the way he approaches things is in this very lethal choice between playing into politics as he constructs it and then a kind of apathy that, or cynicism that is also Potentially lethal to politics, right? So on the one hand, you can become the opposition media that he claims you are because, uh, like any reasonable media would cover him extraordinarily negatively, as in fact happens. And and then he complains about it from the stage, making the media the opposition party to him. And on the other hand, if you say, well, I'm going to ignore Donald Trump. I'm going to like try to cover things that are just undercovered and ignore, I guess, a presidential debate where the president threatens that there's going to be election violence if he's not reelected, that also creates space for him to take over American politics in that perspective. One of the just like truths is that in a two party system, if one of the parties becomes deranged, you're out of good choices very quickly. It isn't like there are good options. People want there to be some kind of answer to hard problems. And sometimes there isn't. Um, you know, you can say go vote a lot, but that doesn't, like, that's not that interesting of a, of a way to do it. And so I think these things present the media with a very hard choice. The nice thing about debates is that I think they're a little bit less like that than, than other moments, because at least people are tuning in. Although I wonder how many people truly made it through that one. It was quite difficult to watch. And, they're tuning in, so maybe there is space for 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 sense making and, and, and construction. The other side of this is that I do think it's at least worth trying to shine a little bit of light on on Biden's performance, which is I don't mean performance, because I think it was actually I think he did a reasonably good job under like constant hectoring. It's very hard to have a normal debate. And he ended up, I think. You could watch him. He came into the debate and you could see in like the way he was talking, the way he was smiling, that just as Trump's people prepared Donald Trump to be like angry, hectoring, knock Biden off his game, be super aggressive, dominate from the first moment. Biden's people prepared him to like be friendly, be somebody the American people would like, like sort of be light in the way that Donald Trump can can often act dark. Um, but. Trump throws him off that pretty quickly, and Biden actually does readjust reasonably well on the fly. Simultaneously he keeps his cool, becomes much more direct. I think my favorite of the Biden lines was, oh just shush already. <laughs> uh, but he has a bunch like that. He's like, would you just shut up? He stops, like he stops calling the you know Trump Mr. President, he comes like this this man, this man becomes his moniker for Trump. There's a lot of little things in the debate where Biden begins calling a spade a spade. He calls Trump racist on the stage, which, you know, I was actually not expecting going into, into the debate. But the other thing about it that I think is interesting is that Biden really was not able to make a a clear positive case for his agenda. He's not a super clear version of that anyway. And the truth is that if you like talk to Biden people about why he's running, it's much more the soul of the nation kind of thing than it is that Biden has like three plans. He's unbelievably committed to passing. But to the extent there was a, a, a real weakness, and I'm I'm not really sure how it could have been so otherwise. I mean, I think if Elizabeth Warren had been across the stage, she would have been more effective at this. But it was also just hard with Trump interrupting constantly. But I do think the, the real weakness of Biden here was that he had trouble saying crisply what it is Donald Trump has done and then what it is he would do differently. I mean, in part because Trump was constantly lying about what he had done and then lying about what Biden would do while Biden was speaking. So it's just very hard to for anybody to finish a thought. But but that was a like a, I don't call it a missed opportunity for Biden exactly, because again, I'm not sure. I think it would have been very hard to do this well under those circumstances, but it's a missed opportunity in the election. Um, and it's a missed opportunity for voters to hear what is being thought of and promised to them. And I'll just say it's like a final thing. Biden very notably was asked about core packing and the filibuster. And I. I was really struck that he simply refused to answer. This is a pretty important and it was an on point question by Chris Wallace where he said, like, will you just say to the American people, like, would you support getting rid of the filibuster or or adding justices to the court? And Biden says, no, because then my answer will become the story, which I actually think in another context, like (laughs) without... Donald Trump acting like a loon six feet away. Uh, that would have been a real story, actually. Like what would, would like, yes, of course your answer will become the story. You're running for president and your positions on things are very meaningful. But that is also a move for Joe Biden, who I think at another... There are lots of things Joe Biden disavowed in that debate. He disavowed defunding the police. He disavowed supporting the Green New Deal. He disavowed getting rid of private health insurance. And he notably and very, very specifically did not disavow getting rid of the filibuster and and adding justice to the court, which the more I think about it was the more, like in many ways, his most important and surprising answer of
4: the night. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's... Uh... I mean, it's hard to know what to make of Biden, I think, as we've talked about a number of times, right? I mean, he's he's not just old, which he is, but like he's from another era of American politics that makes him good at politics on one level. He comes from a time when there was much more elasticity in the electorate and where what you said and did had a much bigger impact on voting. And so he won elections in Delaware in uh the 1972 cycle, the 1978 cycle, and the 1984 cycle. And those were two years that the Republican presidential candidate carried Delaware hard handily, and then a terrible midterms for for Democrats. And and Biden like did it, like real politics. And he has a good job of like hewing to popular stances he's not afraid you know trump kept saying like oh you'll never disavow this popular unpopular left wing thing cuz then you know like the left owns you but like the left doesn't own biden he he won the primary he's very comfortable he he knows what he wants to say it's it's all really solid but it does make me wonder like how ready is he for a politics in which post trump Like, things are different, but they're not that different, you know? And I don't feel like he... He doesn't articulate really what the conflict in American politics is about, it seems to me. He's good at doing sort of takes about Donald Trump that sort of shape people's people's view of of the narrow situation. But everything you were recounting before about polarization, right? The things that make conservatives line up behind Trump. Biden doesn't quite express like what those are, like what the what the social forces in conflict are and what it is he would conceivably do in this post filibuster world or this court packing world like what like like what's biden all about what is the transformation that conservatives fear that makes them willing to do all this illegal stuff to try to bring him down it's something i always liked about both warren and bernie is that they seem to me to have a very clear diagnosis of like what's what's going on in america And so many other Democrats, including Biden, I feel like they get they get fuzzy in it, you know, or they will make it out to be that other leaders in the Republican Party are somehow being cowardly. Right. That like they're they're just like afraid to stand up to Trump and and do the right thing. When I think the truth, you know, is as you've explained and, you know, people can explain it in more pejorative ways or or kinder ways. But like one way or another, it's like there's people out there who like they really want abortion to be illegal. They really want the corporate tax rate to be low. They really don't want there to be regulation of pollution. This is why the machine works. It's like it's not just this one clown up there on stage. And I just don't know. Like, I can't the the um, the court thing was like the clearest example where Biden was just out there saying, like, listen, I'm hiding the ball on this one. What did,
3: what did you think of his answer? Because I think it's I think this goes right to the heart of your question. So Trump like threw him this ball, right? Like what Trump thinks this election is about and what American politics is about is like the demographic hordes coming for the aging white majority's power. And so he says to, to to Biden in the the the, the race and, and and protesting side, I had this one line. Where he was like, "What is a peaceful protest anyway?" And it's like, well, um, he says to Biden, "You won't even say law and order." And then Biden has this answer where he says, "Of course, we will say law and order, law and order with justice and equality." What did you think of that answer?
4: I mean, that seemed good to me. That seemed like a good a good kind of answer. Although, again. It- it felt to me like a missed opportunity to mention like that Donald Trump seems to be doing tax fraud. Yeah, sure. And that and that all this kind of stuff is going. But I mean, not just in the sense of like it would have been a good zinger, right? But it's like the construction of Law and Order, particularly in the Trump era. Like it, yes, it, it like it has a racial dog whistle element to it, but it also just has an element of real falseness to it, right? Like, white-collar criminal prosecutions have dropped to the lowest level on record. There was a hilarious story. This was right before the pandemic, but it was like white-shoe law firms were, like, sending these letters out to their corporate clients, like, begging them not to drop them you know, and like saying like, oh, no, like you may think you don't need us on retainer anymore because Trump isn't prosecuting anyone for anything. But like, he's not going to be in the office forever. Like you still need a good lawyer. And to me, that's such a telling thing about like what's actually happening in America and why at the kind of higher points for Trump, you know, it's like, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, did this like totally embarrassing dog and pony show with the president a few months ago where he went to a factory that Apple's been running in Texas for years. And Trump was like, see, they just opened up this factory because of my tax bill. And Cook is up there and he's like, yeah, that's right, Mr. President. And like, well, why would you do that? Right. And like the reason you would do it is like unfathomable sums of money have flowed directly into Tim Cook's pocket because of Donald Trump's tax bill. And like, I don't even think Tim Cook likes Donald Trump. But like so much more money he has made directly only because Donald Trump is president than the average American will ever see in their life. And like that weighs so heavily on the world. Let, let, let me try an argument out about this
3: because this goes to, to this question of polarization. Um, Donald Trump has what i would call an inversion of the normal rhetorical substance relationship where he tends to state like the rhetoric of his presidency incredibly aggressively uh, everything from like what he says about protesters and riots and white supremacists all like all the way down to what he says about his healthcare plan or trade or anything else and then compared to the rhetoric that he plays around with he runs a very he runs a much more modest actual executive branch because he's not really that interested in it. And he's checked by a lot of other um, you know, branches and, and and powers. So, like on the one hand, Donald Trump like runs this very aggressive presidency. And on the other hand, there's like it's a lot of sound and fury signifying not no agenda, because there are a lot of people out there, but actually a, a sort of weirdly, for the most
4: part, normalized agenda of like letting corporations like dump pollution into rivers. Yeah, he appoints judges, right? He likes to talk about that, but it's like everybody appoints judges. And on the other hand, I think that Joe Biden might be,
3: I think the question with Joe Biden is whether he is doing the reverse, right? What Biden tends to do is he wants to frame the question of American politics as narrowly around Donald Trump, not these like much bigger questions that we were talking about a moment ago. But like, do you you think this guy, this kind of mean, nasty guy, This liar over here, like this, this crazy person, like does he represent you? Is he who you want as president? Like if not, like come to me, Joe Biden. He doesn't want to like frame the very sort of sharp fights over, say, like socialism versus capitalism that you would hear from from more of a Bernie Sanders. And at the same time, and I've written about this and and, and others have remarked on it, he's begun to develop in the background of that a much more ambitious agenda. Like Joe Biden's rhetoric sounds sort of like pretty moderate, although obviously he's moved with the Democratic Party in recent years. But even within the Democratic Party, it's more moderate. And on the other hand, you can really begin to see the outlines, particularly given where a lot of Senate and, and House Democrats have been moving. Of It's entirely possible that Joe Biden will deny that we are a divided country And at the same time, like run a much more ambitious play, right? Barack Obama did not try to get rid of the filibuster when he was president. He did not try to lead Senate Democrats in that effort, where it seems increasingly to me that there's a a very good chance that happens under under Democrats with Biden. And right now, which is when you would expect Biden to say, absolutely not, that's ridiculous, even if it might happen later, he doesn't. So I, I sometimes wonder whether or not Biden, who is simultaneously a rhetorically cautious and then pretty substantively pragmatic politician, given what a pragmatic politician would actually do right now, is cloaking a much more ambitious agenda and a much more potentially ambitious approach behind this you know, slightly fumbling, much chiller, calmer approach to rhetorical approach to politics. There was a a, a while ago, um, Donald Trump's campaign released an ad, and it was this very ridiculously photoshopped thing. It was a clip, I think, of an old movie of the Trojan battles, and so they had the Trojan horse going into. <laughs> Going in, and then they like photoshopped, like I think it was Biden's face on the horse, but then the the, the soldiers coming out of the horse were, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC uh-huh. <laughs> and Ilan Omar and so on, and everybody laughed at them because like this looked like a like a seventh grader had done it. But I actually thought there's a little bit of a point to it. It's not literally the Bernie Sanders AOC agenda. Biden does not support their agenda. But it's something much more ambitious and aggressive that like even a Michael Bennett is on now than like John Pester was just asked by the National Review if he supports ending the filibuster, which he's been completely unequivocal on at other times. And he basically said, I don't want to end the filibuster. But, you know, we got to see what the other side does, which is right. a big, actual rhetorical move for him. And so I do think there's this way in which it's very easy to see what Donald Trump is doing, which is like he frames like the fights of American politics incredibly, incredibly clearly. And then behind that, um, like his administration is just much more of a mess. And then on the other side, I think it's a little bit more unclear. Like there's one version of a Biden presidency where he tries to spend a lot of time negotiating and having drinks with Mitch McConnell and nothing comes of it. And he's a totally feckless president. There's another version where he comes in, tries to have a drink with Mitch McConnell's like, well, that didn't work out. And, it, you know, like Senate Democrats, if they had won the majority in this scenario, get rid of the filibuster and begin passing their agenda and end up having a much more aggressive presidency than Obama did or Bill Clinton did or, or a lot of recent Democrats have even tried to. And one of the tricky things about Biden is at this point, it is impossible to tell the two apart. And for Biden, I think it matters a lot where like the center of his party ends up being, but they've moved a lot too. And so there's just, a, there's a weirdness going on there that it's it's hard to like keep your eye on given like the fireworks of Donald Trump, but it's pretty consequential like what like what Biden's true take on this is or much maybe more to the point, what he will do under duress. If Biden tries to make a deal and he can't, Does he just try again or does he get his backup and say, well, I tried like and I'm a reasonable guy. And so if you can't make a deal with me, you're not going to make a deal. So I guess we're going the other way now.
4: I mean, this was essentially my take on the Hillary Clinton presidency, uh, which, of course, did not happen. Uh, but, But I was I was I was ready to report on it. I was ready to report on the on the transition. And, you know, my basic view was that she is affiliated with the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, that she ran a campaign that downplayed like policy issues in favor of a very sort of. Character centric campaign. She courted these endorsements from all these Bushies and and other kinds of people. But now she was prepared to enact. I I think Dylan Matthews and I, you know, called it like Hillary Clinton's Quiet Revolution, uh, an allusion to our shared favorite episode in the politics of Quebec. Uh, Of course, very well known to everybody out there in the listener world. And the thing about that, though, is that. Hillary is well-known as a detail-oriented, policy-oriented person, right? So even though she wasn't running a campaign that had a lot of overt Message focus on policy. An incredible amount of work was going in behind the scenes to developing her policy ideas. Her people were, I think, actually to a fault, like obsessed with kind of kicking the tires on their specific proposals, making sure that things were like costed out in the right way, that they were ready to go for the CBO. Uh, her, her transition team had gotten to a quite elaborate state in terms of their plan to sort of take over the government and, and go get things done. And, you know, I had an article that was ready to go about how Hillary Clinton was actually like a pretty crappy presidential nominee. Um, She had herself alluded on various occasions to her unsuitability for the actual task at hand, Uh, but that she was really well prepared to do the part of the job of the president where like you're actually president, Uh, was very well organized, had these like great teams, had big, big things going on. And Biden, I just don't know. Like I literally, you know, I've been in D.C. for like forever now. And I, I didn't know Biden as well as I knew almost any of the other people who were in the Democratic field in 2020. And he has not engaged a ton with the press over the course of this campaign. His policy operation has often felt a little bit um, of an afterthought in a campaign that, you know, not just like their message wasn't really about policy, but like actually their campaign was not really about policy. It was about electability. It was about nostalgia for Obama. Now it's about um, his tremendous empathy, right? I mean, he really demonstrates that like Donald Trump on an emotional and intellectual level doesn't take the pandemic seriously. Whereas Joe Biden has suffered losses in touch with other people, cares a lot about you. He's like dug in on this. So then it just it just makes me not know, like, if he was somebody else, I might think, okay, there is definitely like a master plan at work behind this. As it is, like, I'm left a little confused like you know you'll be going along like okay this is great like biden's moving left democrats are moving left they're getting serious and then like ted kaufman you know a few weeks ago was like well Trump just left the cupboard bare with his big deficits, So like, we can't really do anything. And, you know, I looked at that and like a bunch of progressives yelled at him. And so the campaign was like, no, 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 of course we don't mean that. Uh, But who knows? Like, Ted Kaufman's a million years old. So is Biden. Who even knows who he listens to on any of these topics uh, versus who's who's in the campaign? And like, I'm just torn between, okay, this is going to be the greatest surprise where actually the Biden administration breaks all kinds of barriers Barriers on policy that Obama never could. And the worry that, you know, he's going to beat Trump and people are going to feel really good about that. And then he's going to be completely overmatched by relentless partisan warfare that will be conducted by people who are not really any more principled than Trump, but who are more disciplined. Because, you know, even just like he did a good job of like parrying the kind of attacks on Hunter, but he didn't have a substantively good answer to those attacks. You know what I mean? It was, it was actually just like good debating and like turning of the question to other things and Trump being such a kind of maniac up there. But like, I could just imagine him being dogged by investigations forever, that like he and his people are not going to stonewall the way Trump would. And we're gonna be sitting around and we'll be like, how did we just go through four years of a president just like stealing everything that wasn't nailed down with no oversight hearings, but the Biden administration is twisted into knots constantly about some meeting that happened 10 years ago with the mayor of Moscow. And like, I don't, I I just I don't I've never fundamentally developed that kind of like supreme confidence in Biden's operation as a as a governing entity Um, every week that goes by that he's still beating Trump badly. I like I I guess I have to raise my estimation of them. They're obviously doing a lot right. But like, I don't know what's your like, what's what's your take? Like, do you do do you feel like you you know, Joe Biden? Let's take a break and then I'll, I'll tell
3: you if I know Joe.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's GreenLight.com slash gray area to try GreenLight for free. GreenLight.com slash gray area.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
3: So a bit like you, I've had the experience of, I know a lot of the folks running for president. I've, I've been on calls and stuff with Joe Biden. I don't feel that he is as predictable as other presidents, but I feel like it has taken me some time, but I actually feel like I have an understanding of him, which he's a he's a party politician. And so I think looking for a Joe Biden core is a mistake. And usually when people hear that in politics, they they they, they think something very specific because we fetishize authenticity in American politics and, and sincerity. It's like, well, like there's this old line from Bill Clinton, like people vote for somebody strong and wrong over somebody weak and right. Um, and, and Joe Biden like likes to like sound strong when he says stuff. Uh, but Joe Biden flips around a lot and he flips around because he's a politician who thinks actually an important part of American politics is figuring out where the voters are and where your party is and where like the zone of agreement where you can get something done is and being there. And so Biden, and this is actually I think is true about Kamala Harris too. We talked about this in in the episode after she was uh, named vice president. It, like Biden believes in politics, and so I don't think the right question to ask with Joe Biden is where is Joe Biden on the deficit? I've asked people on the campaign that and what I have heard is three days a week, Joe Biden wakes up thinking he needs to be FDR. And three days a week, Joe Biden wakes up worrying about the deficit. And the seventh day, nobody quite knows. It changes week to week and it depends on what's going on. And so the question of what do like key members of the Democratic Party like? What does the House Ways and Means Chairman think about the deficit? Which in this case is Richard Neal, and he worries a lot about the deficit. And I think it's somebody who progressives should worry a little bit about uh, how much power he has over progressive priorities. And on the other hand, in in the Senate, uh, I think Ron Wyden, who I think also cares about deficits, but he's going to he's in line to become Finance Chair if they take back the Senate. And I think he's moved a lot over the years, and his. His agenda has gotten a lot more ambitious and he, along with Bennett, is responsible for that $600 UI boost. It helped a ton of people. And so I think these things really matter. Like where these kinds of players are is really going to have a lot to do with where Joe Biden is. They're going to try to figure out what is possible and what is possible is going to like Joe Biden. He pings what is possible by like one where he thinks the electorate is, which, as you say, given how he's performed so far, he's had a pretty good read on it. And then secondarily, um, where his own party is, where I, which I think he understands is going to be the key, the key negotiating structure. So, like that's one thing. But I do want to say one other thing uh, before we like hit the end is, which is I want to talk about some of the people not on the stage, which is I do not want to let this episode pass by and not say that every Republican politician and like party elite in that broad definition, watching Donald Trump week after week, month after month, year after year, watching him not uh, condemn white supremacy on that stage, watching him just act nuts on that stage, watching him lie constantly on that stage, watching him mislead the American people on that stage, watching him... uh, suggest uh, over and over and over again during this election that he would not abide by the results. So a bunch of them recently did release statements saying in different ways, like, no, there will be an election on election day and then like somebody will win that election and they will take office in one of these. Like they didn't name Donald Trump as a person they were smacking down there, but they were kind of maybe smacking him down. Like they are the ones who are responsible. And you could watch Chris Wallace there again as a sort of Republican control group. Like, you know, perfectly well, Chris Wallace, like if he votes, voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. Like, you know perfectly well, Chris Wallace, like voted for John McCain over Barack Obama. Like, Chris Wallace is a Republican. He's a conservative guy. Like, that's why he's on Fox News. And you could watch him just, like, the disgust with how Donald Trump was acting was radiating off of him. Like, I don't think Chris Wallace is going to walk into a ballot. Fox and like vote for Donald Trump. Meanwhile, on Twitter, Laura Ingram, Chris Wallace's colleague on Fox News is saying, oh, so Joe Biden just gets to interrupt with impunity. I mean, it's like the most ridiculous thing you could ever imagine. Like, uh, like it's not that Joe Biden never interrupted, but what, a 10th, a 20th, a 100th the way uh, Donald Trump was. And Wallace at some point had to call that out. He's like, you guys, like we need to stop this, Mr. President. And Trump said like, well, Biden, well, he's interrupting too. And and Wallace like clearly did not want to be in this position. He said, yeah, but a lot less than you are, sir. And so usually you and I argue different, the opposite versions of this. And I'm the structuralist and you you always make the point correctly that people have moral responsibilities. But we are in this mess in American politics because the Republican Party, in fact, is full of craven cowards who have been willing to make a devil's bargain over and over and over again. And like I have written a thousand times on what the logic of that bargain is and it doesn't make it not a devil's bargain. Like it doesn't make them not culpable in something horrible and in something dangerous. And like maybe they all skate through it. Maybe what happens is that Donald Trump just botches this enough with hundreds of thousands of Americans dead from the coronavirus and a million other disasters in his wake that he loses Florida and Ohio early in the night on election night. And that's that like there's no room for him to contest the election. And so in the end, they supported him. They got their judges. They got their tax cuts. He's gone. Joe Biden's in. And they get to say, you know what, like net net, like kind of glad I did that. And like nothing goes down um, and like they're never called to account for what they did. And maybe like maybe this story goes in a much darker direction. And like maybe, maybe you really do have murders from the Proud Boys like in the aftermath of the election. And we know what this looks like. Like we have seen this in. Dozens, hundreds of other countries across history, like this has been warned, you know, like you can go back to our founding documents. All these people claim to revere the founders and claim to read the Federalist Papers. And the warnings against demagogues were pretty clear. And like what the Electoral College was for was pretty clear. And all these Republican elites who will watch this and be like, oh, I didn't really get to see the debate yet, so I don't have a comment on it. Or, you know, the president says a lot of stuff, but you look at his record on judges and and it's disgusting and there is at some point at like some base level like there needs to be some loyalty to the american experiment where you're willing to take the hit i mean parties you know there there were ways the party could have dumped trump but of course they didn't feel like they had the power to do that and probably didn't have the votes to do that but but at some point you just you can't it can't all be worth leveraging and like i just I get why people do it, and I get why these decisions are hard to make, and I get you don't want to lose your elections, and I get it. Like, I do. Um, like, I, I, see, I see the bargain. And they should hang their fucking heads in shame because that man should not be on the stage, and there should be no chance he is president in 2021, and he should not be president now. And it is their endless enabling of him that makes it so he is, and so he might be in the future... And that has left America unprotected from this. And like, whatever happens here, like, I think that is like the key thing. Like, we are unprotected. You can see how easily this could flip. You could see how easily, like, this could all go up in flames. And the reason is, is that we don't think. Of our structure because it's not our constitution as political parties. But political parties are the key actors at this point in our political structure. And if they are not both going to be responsible, then there is a massive, massive failure mode built into the American political system. And like the road to it is right through the Republican Party now. And like they are all there on the bus, cheering when they need to be and silent when they need to be actually standing up and it's just it's disgusting like it is like disgusting
4: i thought the um excerpt of the uh, so so peter baker and susan glasser have this new biography out about uh, james baker who was one of the most important figures in in republican party politics over the years he was treasury secretary and then secretary of state and george h w bush's campaign manager twice And he was the sort of architect of the Bush v. Gore legal strategy that was successful. Um, Three Supreme Court justices are going to be veterans of the legal team that he assembled there. So he's really like at the at the core of of the Republican Party, but also kind of an old school, you know, diplomat kind of person. And they go through in their article, you know, like Baker tried to advise Trump. He tried to offer his services as a guy who has worked for a lot of Republican presidents in a lot of capacities and explained to him why it would be useful to actually cooperate with Democrats occasionally. You know, not in a like high-minded, I'm bipartisan kind of way, but, you know, in just like, that's how you do politics and try to explain to him about alliances and international stuff. And, you know, Trump totally blows him off and he's totally disgusted. He calls him like, like an idiot, he calls him crazy. Um, and then at the end of the article, like Baker tells them that he's gonna vote for him, you know, and like he's not a guy who's been duped by Fox News. Like, he and Democrats didn't give people like him. I think a lot of people like him really wanted Democrats to nominate Bernie Sanders because that would give them the excuse that they were looking for, right? That Trump was this bulwark against socialism. And that was taken away from them by Democrats nominating Biden, who everybody knows to be a, a pillar of the Washington establishment, a critic of the left wing of the Democratic Party. And so they now have no reason that they can really offer as to, like, why it's worth running, call it a 10 percent chance that, like, American democracy is completely Pulverized by by Trump over opposition to Biden, they, they have nothing to say for themselves, and yet they're really out there. You know, not just look. People are in tough electoral positions, but you know, uh, Pat Roberts, Lamar Alexander, Mike Enzi are all retiring from the Senate at the end of this year. They're all prosperous men. They are all in their late seventies or early eighties. They don't really need another job. They could have teamed up with Mitt Romney on the couple of times when Romney has taken a stand against Trump. And so if that was four senators rather than just three, right, that would also encourage Lisa Murkowski, who likes to go rogue, uh, to do something like that. And then that might give cover to someone like Cory Gardner or Kristen Sinema, who are right now going to lose their Senate seats um, to put some distance between themselves and Trump. And we could be in a totally different world that right in which trump is facing meaningful intra-party criticism not about like his circuit court judicial picks but about his general conduct as as president and i don't think he would change in response to a sort of tough brushback by inside the party but he at least might you know like we don't really know. Um, Most people are capable of responding to incentives and things like that. And for years now, Republicans in Congress have just created the incentive structure where they know in their hearts that they're not going to stand up to Trump on almost anything if Trump really pushes it. That they they move around the edges. And so sometimes his goofier nominees will get killed and stuff like that. But like they just fold and Trump knows that they'll fold and they know that they'll fold. And it's that's really what's put us in this incredibly dangerous position where I mean, I I think Trump is just going to lose by a large enough margin that it doesn't matter, at least like that's the most likely outcome. But there's just a wide range of possibilities out here. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, they're just they're failing in their roles as statesmen. And there's just such a, an unacceptably high chance that we're going to look back on this or, or somebody will look back on it and be like, yep, there was the debate where the president said he wanted the Proud Boys to stand back and, and wait for further instructions uh, so they could pour into Philadelphia and stop people from voting. And uh, in retrospect, maybe someone should have said something about that, but they just didn't. And, you know, this is where we are. That is where we are.
3: Sorry, this was a little bit grim, everybody, but this was grim. And I think it's worth calling that out. I think it is worth Like, this is where we are. It's not I'm not doing like this is how the American experiment ends. Like, we've actually been in places like this before and it has gone worse than than I think this one will go. But it would be a disservice to suggest that the place we're in isn't truly dangerous and just truly telegraphed. I mean, I'll say this is maybe my final comment, but there's a part of me that almost respects and definitely appreciates Donald Trump's lack of subtlety and guile. That when you ask him something, like, will you condemn white supremacists? He doesn't just say, "Of course." but then, like, continue sort of working with them on the sly that when you ask him, like, what's going to happen in the election? Will you tell your people to stand down?" He doesn't just say, "Of course. I have every confidence the election is going to be carried out reasonably. And then if he wants to screw with things later, does that in the moment. I mentioned Masha Gessen's point earlier that the language and pageantry of liberal democracy can often obscure what Donald Trump is, and they, in their book, and, and in their appearance on on my show, make this point that when you talk about, when you add all the normal nouns around Donald Trump, it can make everything seem really normal. Donald Trump is the president of the United States who participated in a presidential debate against Joe Biden this week. And he lied a bunch and gave a really aggressive performance, which he interrupted constantly. And it would be very hard from something like that to understand the flavor of what just happened. And I appreciate I appreciate Donald Trump for working so hard to break the boundaries of that, to show what he is constantly and to say, like, in a very real way, like, there's no excuse. There's nothing we didn't know, nothing we didn't see. You know, even the Trump tax returns just came out, like they just, they functionally told us what we know. The guy's a a aggressive tax dodger, but also he's a marketer who does well in his branding business and fails at everything he tries to actually run. Like, like everything else with Trump, the secrets are not secrets. The truth is all the way out there. And oftentimes he just basically says it, except on, you know, that he's a bad businessman. That's the one truth about himself that he can never quite come to admit. But in a lot of other ways, like, there's this constant, like, I oh, told, you know, Bob Woodward something or like something will come out that he, you know, like Don, like there's a, the Jeffrey Goldberg piece that he called, you know, people who fight in wars losers that he called so that he dismissed soldiers. And then he but he did that publicly with John McCain a bunch of different times. Like, we know who he is. And I'll say this for America, that if this was actually a democracy where the people got who they voted for, like the the people, the person who got the most votes won, nobody would think Donald Trump has any chance of winning the election at all. And he also wouldn't be president now. So like his only shot is that he will lose, but lose in such a way that he can still win. And now that he will lose, but either lose in such a way that he can still win or somehow manage to, like, distort the election so, like, the losing doesn't matter. So we're we're not at a place where what the issue is is Donald Trump's animal magnetism simply attracts so many people to his side. And he really does try to show, like, that, like, what he is is this, and do you want this? Like, he doesn't... It's not hidden. There's not, like, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. But that also means we have no excuses. Like, we knew what he was. Uh, In 2016, he used to... Get on stage, and he would recite this rhyme or song or poem called "The Snake," and uh, I'm gonna get it wrong from memory, but it's a take on the old fable of like you know you're carrying a snake across the river, and then at the end the snake bites you, and you say like why 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 did you do that? Like now we're both gonna die. And the snake says, "You knew what I was. You knew I was a snake when you picked me up," and he always used that as a fable on immigrants. But like with everything with Trump, it's a massive act of projection. And it's him. Like He's the snake. And we knew what he was when we picked him up. And he never tires of reminding us of what he is. It's like, we have plenty of information now. Now we just have to use it. And unfortunately, because of the structure of our system, use it in such numbers that it actually matters. Thank you to Matt for being on the show. Uh, thank you to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Risha Karma for researching the Ezra Klein Vox Media podcast production.